If you would, find in the Old Testament the book of Jonah. And as you're locating that book, let me tell you what we're going to do. I'm going to go ahead and set the table for what I want to say this afternoon. That will allow us to move along at a pretty reasonable clip since we're going to look at four chapters and 48 verses. First of all, the theme for this uh, afternoon is simply this. Our God is a missionary God. Our God is a missionary God. And in each of these four chapters, we're going to see a prophet, a preacher, uh, who was called to be a missionary, and yet, even though there was no barriers uh, as far as transportation, as far as geopolitical issues, no barriers to keep Jonah from going to Nineveh except Jonah's heart. That was the only problem in the whole equation. And so each of these four chapters, we're going to see four wonderful truths that relate to Jonah, but also, I hope, will relate to us as well. So let me give them to you very quickly. In the first chapter, we're going to see you can run, but you cannot hide from God. You can run, but you cannot hide from God. And in this chapter, we see Jonah running from God. Then in chapter 2, we're going to see what is at the heart of the Bible, and that is this, salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. And in chapter 2, we see Jonah running to God. Then in chapter 3, we encounter a wonderful truth, and that truth is this, God is the God of the second chance. Our God is the God of the second chance. And here we see Jonah running with God. And then finally, in chapter 4, we're going to see that lost people matter to God. and Therefore, lost people should matter to us. Lost people matter to God, and therefore, lost people should matter to us. And there we see Jonah running against God. So we see Jonah running from God, chapter 1. Jonah running to God, chapter 2. Jonah running with God in chapter 3. And Jonah running against God in chapter 4. And then the other thing I want to do in this session, as I mentioned uh, this uh, morning, I have been tremendously blessed and shaped over the years by uh, missionary biographies and missionary quotes that inspire me and challenge me to think differently and act differently. And so I'm going to interweave into our study this afternoon a number of quotes from wonderful missionaries from the past I hope will uh, exhort you, also challenge you, but also encourage you as well. And so as we start into chapter 1, let me give you a statement that I hope uh, oversees all that we do in the moments we have. Henry Martin was a wonderful missionary both to India and to Persia. Uh, he was an intellectual genius, picked up languages just like that, and had incredible potential. And God in His amazing providence and mysterious providence took him at the age of 31. But Henry Martin was a prolific journaler, and Henry Martin made this statement, the Spirit of Christ is the Spirit of missions. The nearer we get to Jesus, the more intensely missionary we become. The Spirit of Christ is the Spirit of missions. The nearer we get to Jesus, the more intensely missionary we become. John Piper adds, to belong to Jesus is to embrace the nations. 
To belong to Jesus is to embrace the nations. And unfortunately, we see someone diametrically opposed to that in this man by the name of Jonah. One more thing, we jump in. I do believe Jonah was a real person. And I do believe that Jonah was swallowed by a real fish. You say, why do you believe that, Danny? It sounds so sensational and and so mythical. And if you were to engage more academic, liberal-type scholarship, they would try to direct you away from that interpretation. And there's a very simple reason why I believe that uh, Jonah was swallowed by a great fish, and that's because Jesus believed that Jonah was swallowed by a great fish. Go read Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 through 41. Ultimately, my foundation for what I believe is not some scholar or pseudo-scholar in a university, but my authority is the Word of God and the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. That is good enough for me, and it ought to be good enough for you too. So with that foundation, let's jump in. You can run, but you cannot hide from God. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. And I might point out that he is actually referred to as a historical person in 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse 25. And Jonah received a threefold command from the Lord. All three of the verbs that you see there in verse 2 are in the imperative. He is not asking or suggesting. He is commanding Jonah to do these things. Arise, number one, go to Nineveh, that great city, great in size, great influence, also great in sin, and call out or preach against it for their evil has come up before me. Now, you and I would think Jonah, being a preacher, being a prophet, we would think that verse 3 would have said, and Jonah rose to go to Nineveh. But that's not what we read, is it? But Jonah rose to flee. Flee to Tarshish. Many believe, most believe it was a seacoast town on the western part of Spain. Uh, uh, Nineveh was uh, northeast by land, and Tarshish was due west by sea. And so Jonah goes in exactly the opposite direction that God has commanded him to go. And so Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from, and if you're a Bible marker like I am, you should either highlight or underline the phrase from the presence of the Lord because it occurs there in verse 3 at the beginning again in verse 3 at the end, and a third time in verse 10 here in chapter 1. So it's emphasized three times that Jonah is running from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, which is on the coast of Israel, uh, Jaffa today, uh, and he found a ship going to Tarshish, and he paid the fare and went on board. Literally, he went down into the boat to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Now, just think about this for a moment. As we walk through these four chapters, you're going to understand something about Jonah. Jonah did not have a head problem. Jonah had a heart problem. Jonah had orthodox theology. Jonah understood the Hebrew faith very, very well, and there's no indication that he was a heretic, no indication that he was a false teacher, Jonah had his theology down clear. And here's what's funny about that. Jonah then knew that Yahweh God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and everywhere present. 
So I have a question for all of us this afternoon. Who in this room is so dumb that they think that they can run away and hide from God? I mean, what planet are you from? What is going on in your head? Now, I know because I've been there. We sometimes think we can sneak away. Uh, we think we can go and hide out somewhere. We think that we are so insignificant to God that we can just slither off the scene and he'll never take notice and you could not be more wrong. God sees every single thing that goes on in your life and God is intimately concerned about everything that goes in, on, into your on in your life. And so here's Jonah who knows Theologically, he cannot run away from God. And what does he do? He tries to run away from God. Well, I'm going to talk fast now for the remainder of chapter 1. And it's kind of funny along the way as well. So let's enjoy it for a moment. But the Lord hurled. Uh, that word, by the way, is used when Saul threw a spear to kill uh, David. He hurled a spear. So like throwing a spear, the Lord hurls a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty, literally a great tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. It was a great storm. Was it great because of its suddenness? Maybe. Was it great because of its size? Maybe. Was it great because of its strength? Maybe. We don't know. What we do know is this was a storm unlike anything these old salts of the sea had ever seen before because verse 5 tells us the mariners, the salts of the sea, were afraid. And so they did a wise thing. They began to pray. Talked about that a good bit today. And so they began to pray and they cried out to his God, each and every one of them. And not only did they pray, they worked, which, by the way, is not a bad combination when it comes to a situation like this. You pray, and you ask God, and you beg God for help, and at the same time, you work hard to do something about it. So they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it. Well, all of them were helping, but one, uh, Jonah, no, he had gone down again into the inner part of the ship. He had lain down, and he was fast asleep. If I can use a euphemism here, the, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. And where's Jonah, the prophet, the man of God? He's asleep, completely oblivious, completely unconcerned about all of the people around him. You see, when you begin to run away from God's will for your life, you will become insensitive to the needs of others. You won't see the world the way God sees the world. You won't see lost people the way God sees lost people. When I was a teenager, saved at the age of 10, did not walk with God again until I was almost 20 years old, I never gave a second thought to the souls of my classmates in high school. I have such great regret for that. The idea of being on mission with God never, ever crossed my mind. There was never a thought as to the lostness and the vastness of the lostness in this world because I was so occupied with me, and I was so concerned with me. It would not be a misuse of the phrase at all to say I had a Jonah complex, and I was only concerned about my welfare my well-being, and what I want. But then Jonah is confronted, verse 8. So the captain came and said to him, what are you doing? What do you mean, you sleeper? 
And look at the two words. Now, if you're a Bible marker, you ought to mark the next two words. Arise and call. Has Jonah heard those words before? He sure did. Back up in verse 2, from the lips of his God. And so now this particular mariner, this captain, using the same words, arise and call out to your God. Maybe it is your God who is the right God, and he will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Well, evidently things didn't go well. And so verse 7 continues the narrative, and they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. And of course, none of us are surprised at what happened when they cast the lots because Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 33 says, the lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the Lord. And so they cast lots, and at the end of verse 7, we see exactly where they fall. The lot fell on Jonah. So now Jonah's exposed. Now Jonah's on the spot. And now they begin an interrogation of the man of God who is running from God, and they pepper him with no less than five questions there in verse 8. They said to him, tell us, number one, on whose account this evil has come upon us? Number two, what is your occupation? Number three, where do you come from? Number four, what is your country? And number five, of what people are you? Now, this is fascinating to me. Jonah will answer four of the five questions. Jonah will answer four of the five questions. Guess what question he does not answer? What is your occupation? Because that was the one thing Jonah did not want to admit. That's not, that is the one thing Jonah did not want to face up to. That was the one thing Jonah was running away from. And so look at what he says there in verse 9. He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear Yahweh, the Elohim of heaven. The, the word Lord, anytime you see the word Lord in an English translation in all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, almost always symbolize or stands for the, the personal name of God, Yahweh. And then when you see the word God, it is the Hebrew word Elohim. And so if we were to translate it to catch the gist of it, I fear Yahweh. He is the God of heaven, and I've got some bad news for you. He made the sea, and he made the dry land. In other words, he is the creator God who made everything. I don't worship a God who is geographically restricted. Most of the ancients tended to see their gods restricted in terms of geography or space. Jonah says, that's not the God that I, I follow. That's not the God that I worship. That's not the God that I trust in. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven and earth. He made the sea and the dry land, which then explains the natural response of verse 10. The men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing third time from the presence of the Lord. Why? Because he had told them. Verse 11, then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? The sea grew more and more tempestuous. We said to them, pick me up. And there it is again, hurl me into the sea that the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Well, evidently, they appreciated his honesty and sincerity, so they tried to still get back to dry land in their own strength and power. Nevertheless, 
The men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they, they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them, and therefore they now call out, and they call out to who? To Yahweh, and they pray, O Lord, O Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. It is for you, O Lord, you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And so they picked up Jonah, and they, there it is again, hurled him, threw him like a spear into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. And, verse 16, the men, they, number one, feared the Lord. I'd mark that word if I were you. They feared the Lord exceedingly. Secondly, they offered, I'd mark that too, they offered a sacrifice to the Lord. And number three, they made vows. The thing Jonah should have done and will soon do, they did. They feared the Lord, they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. Let me give you a very important lesson from chapter 1, and then we will move on. Sin will always take you further than you want to go. And sin will always keep you longer than you want to stay. And sin will always cost you more than you want to pay. Sin will take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. And you can run, but you cannot hide from God. Number two, salvation is of the Lord. Now, Jonah is going to pray in chapter two. And his prayer probably doesn't fall into the typical missionary prayer category, but I'm going to take advantage of it anyway. I like what A.B. Simpson said, prayer is the mighty engine that moves missionary work. Prayer is the mighty engine that moves missionary work. Now, there's actually an awkward chapter division here between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Just by way of reminder, our chapter divisions and our verse divisions are not inspired. I'm glad they are there, but they were put in there uh, many hundreds of years after the Bible was written, many thousands of years in the case of the Old Testament. And so really, verse 17 actually goes better with chapter 2. So, verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish. It never says it was a whale. It just says a great fish. And it swallowed up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Now, I need to very quickly handle a misconception that many people have about Jonah being swallowed by the great fish. Why? Why? Why did God send a great fish to swallow Jonah? And sometimes people say, well, he sent it to punish him. Well, I would agree that there's probably an element of punishment in being thrown into the water and being swallowed by a big fish and being in his stomach in pitch dark and all sorts of slimy gastric juice and other junk for several days. I would figure that that probably falls in the category of discipline or punishment, but that's not the primary reason why God sent the great fish. God sent the great fish for Jonah's salvation. He sent the great fish for Jonah's salvation. It's very simple here. If the great fish had not showed up and swallowed Jonah, what happens to Jonah? Man drowns. 
Man is done, man is gone, man ain't coming back, and so he drowned. So number one, God sent the great fish for Jonah's salvation, all right? Secondly, he sent the great fish for Jonah's education. And as we read through chapter two in this prayer that Jonah prays to the Lord, there's a very strong theological, spiritual education taking place in the belly of the great fish for Jonah, all right? And then thirdly, transportation. He's got to get the puppy back to the dry land to get him on up there to Babylon. So he's got to move him from the ship back to the dry land. So he's there for his salvation. He's there for his education. And he is there also for his transportation. And let me say this and I'll move on. Some of you may be here this afternoon now. And you're like Jonah in the sense that you are in the belly of the great fish receiving God's discipline and education. You say, you ever known that? Oh, I've known that. When I was 19 years old, getting ready to go to college to play baseball, I'm like Sebastian, a big baseball fan, and Tony, a big baseball fan, and I was getting ready to go uh, and and play fall baseball, and I was working out with a friend. Uh, This friend was a three-time All-American at West Georgia and was a second-round draft choice by the San Diego Padres and eventually played six years in the major leagues as a professional baseball player. And so we were working out, and I was a left-handed pitcher, and I was throwing, and he hit a line drive back at me. And I'll just simply say it this way. I was hit by that line drive in a very, 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 very tender area of the male anatomy, and I will just stop right there. You can probably figure out the rest. You say, well, what happened? Well, I dropped to my knees. I broke into a cold sweat. I started throwing up gastric juice, and I swelled up in that particular part of my anatomy larger than my fist. I went to a doctor, went into the waiting room and curled up in the fetal position for lots of reasons, and a woman came in and said, you need to move so I can sit down. And I said, ma'am, I I may never move again, so you can have to go sit somewhere else. Oh, it gets better than that. It gets better than that. I I go in to see the doctor finally, and and they come in with a nurse, and they said, you need to give us a urine specimen. Excuse me? (laughs) Says, you need to, in the bottle. I said, ma'am, well, after all, now I may never do anything in the bottle again. I just, you know, I can't, and I actually did not do that thing for over a week. I was on my back for a month. As it began to dissipate throughout my body, I was black and blue from here to here. And I still have nightmares about it, okay? So I, I, I still have visions of the line drive coming back. And you say, and you learned something through all that? God turned my life around. I wasn't walking with God. I was going to college to play baseball. I was one of the most selfish, egocentric persons you would have ever met in your life. And I had clearly marked out the direction that I intended for my life to go. And God said, nope, I love you too much to let you go your own way. And an old Baptist preacher used to refer to God in terms of his discipline as the hound of heaven who will not let you go. He will track you down. And I learned like Jonah, you are playing the fool. When you try to run from the omnipresent God because you can run all you want and you can't hide, but 
When you turn back to him, you discover both in salvation and even in getting your life right with him, he is the God of salvation. What you have in chapter 2 is a beautiful prayer that Jonah voices to the Lord in the womb of the, or in the belly of the great fish. It is permeated with personal pronouns. There are 25 of them. It is also permeated in the, in the thought language of the Psalms and... Uh, it sounds like Psalm 22 and a resurrection psalm. Remember, Jesus spoke of Jonah as being a type of Christ. Well, I'm just going to read right through it, and you see if you don't find in this beautiful, poetical song both death and resurrection. And then we'll jump into chapter 3. So let's just read the word of the Lord together. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, that is, out of the belly of the grave, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows pass over me. He's a, he's a drowning man. That's what he's saying. Verse 4, then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the very foundations, the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. I was as good as dead, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Now, if that doesn't sound like resurrection, I don't know what does. Verse 8, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. And then he gives us a little commentary on his prayer. Those who pay regard to vain idols, they forsake their hope of steadfast love. It's the beautiful Hebrew word, hesed. Steadfast love, sometimes translated loving kindness. Those who pay regard, those who give homage to idols are fools, for they forsake their only hope of steadfast love, of loving kindness. But I, what? With the voice of thanksgiving, now he sounds like the mariners back in chapter 1, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed, and I will pay. Why? Here's the John 3, 16 of the, of the Old Testament, maybe the key verse in the Old Testament, because salvation belongs to the Lord. And then the Bible says in verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish, and we really should feel sorry for the fish. I mean, he had an upset stomach for three days and three nights, and so finally in grace, God allows him to vomit. And by the way, I did a word study. I know a little Hebrew, not a lot, but I, I did study Hebrew in seminary, and I did a word study of the word vomit, and you know what it means in Hebrew? Vomit. Means to throw up, hurl. And so he, he vomited, he hurled, he threw up. And Jonah was back out there on the dry land. And Jonah discovered that our God is indeed the God of salvation. But then number three, he also discovers that our God is the God of the second chance. Now let me say this before I move on. We should not presume on second chances from God. 
And yet I suspect everybody in this room this afternoon who knows the Lord Jesus as personal Savior would say, as I look back over my life, not only did God give me a second chance, He gave me a third chance and a fourth chance and a fifth chance, and it is only by His amazing grace that I'm even here today. And so we don't presume on it, and yet we recognize He is that kind of loving, gracious, kind, heavenly Father. So the Word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, and it sounds very much like the first time. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it. The, and this is the only addition, the message that I tell you. And this time Jonah obeys, so he arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. It was an exceedingly great city, literally in the Hebrew. It means a city great to God. A city great to God. Just what do you mean by that? It means God cared for this city, and we'll find this out very clearly in chapter 4. It was evil beyond measure. I've seen Miston last night that they were notorious for decapitating uh, soldiers of war. They were notorious for building pyramids of heads by the city gates. The Assyrians were a harsh, vicious people. They were the ISIS of the ancient world, and they were growing in strength. They were growing in power. They were moving across the, 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 the northern part of the Semitic world there, and then starting to swoop down, and down here is little Israel. And by the way, in 722, you say, when did Jonah write this book? About 750 B.C. And in 722, guess whom God used as his arm of discipline against Israel? He used the Assyrians, and they destroyed the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. Now, just keep that in mind, all right? So Jonah is now standing before an evil people, a wicked people. And so it says there, Jonah, verse 4, began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he began to call out, yet 40 days. And Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, some people have taken that verse and said Jonah was still resistant. He only preached about an eight or nine word sermon. I don't believe that's what the text is saying. I think it's just giving us a summary of the sermon that Jonah preached throughout Nineveh as he began to walk in a day's journey, 40 days, and judgment falls. 40 days, and God will destroy you. And then you have this amazing verse in verse 5, and the people of Nineveh said, Amen. You say, no, Danny, it says they believe God. It is the Hebrew word, Amen. We get our word believed. The people of Nineveh said, Amen to the message of Jonah. They believed God, and they then gave evidence of it by uh, going into a fast, by putting on sackcloth and ashes. The king himself makes a great proclamation there in verse 6 down through verse 9. And for time's sake, just look at the end of verse 10. And so they turned from their evil way, and God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And Jonah experienced the greatest single revival in all the Bible. It may be the, the greatest single revival in the history of the world when an entire people group, the Ninevites, the Assyrians, coming to faith in the one true and living God. What a great, grand, and glorious day for a prophet of God. I like what C.T. Studd said in this particular context. Some wish to live within the sound of a chapel bell. 
I wish to run a rescue mission within one yard of hell. I like that. Some wish to live within the sound of a chapel bell, but I wish to run a rescue mission within a single yard of hell. And missionary John Falconer said it similar but different. I have but one candle of life to burn, and I would rather burn it out in a land filled with darkness than in a land flooded with light. And Jonah now has conveyed the message of chapter 2 to the Ninevites. Salvation is indeed of the Lord. Number four, lost people matter to God. And therefore, lost people should matter to you and to me. Look at chapter 4, and we walk through it very quickly. But it displeased Jonah greatly, exceedingly, and he was angry. And so he prayed for the second time, but a much different prayer than the one that he voiced in chapter 2. Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee from Tarshish, for I knew, and if you're a Bible note taker, write in the margin, Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 and 7. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 and 7, one of the great confessions of faith about the Old Testament God, about our God that you find in Scripture. He quotes it virtually verbatim. I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful slow to anger, abounding in hesed, steadfast love, loving kindness, and relenting from disaster. And therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now, evidently, a conversation took place back in chapter 1 that is not recorded for us. Let me basically recount what I think happened. God comes to Jonah and says, Jonah, I've got a job for you as my prophet. Reporting for duty, Lord. Well, the job is this. I'm going to send you over to the Assyrians, and in particular to their major city of Nineveh. You know how bad they are. And Jonah gets really quiet, and all he says is, yeah, I know how bad they are. And God says, well, I want you to go and preach to them. Because unless they repent, I'm going to destroy them. But if you go and preach and they repent, then I'm going to forgive them and I'm not going to destroy them. And Jonah says, well, wait a minute. I don't like the Assyrians. In fact, I hate the Assyrians. Um, They don't deserve to be saved. They're too bad to be saved. They're too evil and wicked to be saved. And by the way, Lord, I know what you're up to. I've seen, alluded to this last night. I know you're not happy with us. And I know that we haven't exactly been honoring you like we should. But even, this is the way he was thinking, even a disobedient Israel is better than a repentant Assyria. And I am so committed to my people. Now, you listen to me. I am so committed to my country, my way of life, my way of thinking, to hell with the rest of the world as long as I get to keep what I've got. And if that doesn't sound like much of America today, I don't know what does. 
to hell with the rest of the world as long as we can make America great again, whatever that is supposed to look like and mean. So Jonah, the nationalist, Jonah, the racist, Jonah, the bigot, says, I will not lift a finger and go and preach the gospel to those evil, wicked people because if I do, they might repent. And I know what you're like. I know, I mean, can you believe, I mean, you know he has a sneer on his face when he's saying this. I know you. I know how you are. You're gracious. You're merciful. Why, you just forgive people when they repent. Full of steadfast love and loving kindness. I know how you are. And so let's just cut to the chase. I'd just rather die. I'd rather die. I cannot deal with a world where Israel gets judged and disciplined and people like the Assyrians are allowed to go on their merry way. I can't live like that, so just go ahead and take me out. Now, you know, Jonah's fortunate that I'm not God. I mean, I'm just going to be honest, guys. Prophets and preachers are a dime a dozen. I mean, I can get rid of one and get, get ten more. And I don't need whiny boy prophet. I just don't have time for that. And so Jonah says, take me out, boom. He is gone. He's a crispy critter. He will never, he won't make scripture new. No. He ain't getting in this book. But I know we're all, including me, glad that I'm not God. And so God just simply raises a question. Well, do you do well to be angry? Which is a kind of a way of saying, Jonah, would you like, like to just stop for a moment, take a look at yourself? Well, it really gets funny now, all right? And we'll close very quickly. Look at verse 5. Jonah went out of the city. And he sat to the east of the city, probably up on a hill. And he made a little booth for himself. And he sat under it in the shade. And he sat there till he should see what would become of the city. He's had two options here. He's got option one, the Assyrians, the Ninevites will revert back to their evil and God will get them. Or number two, maybe God will change his mind. Maybe God will actually see my way is better than his way. I see things better than he sees things. And the Assyrians, the Ninevites will still get what they have coming to them. Well, the Lord, verse 6, appointed. Now, he's going to start appointing a bunch of stuff. He already appointed the wind back in chapter 1, but now he starts appointing a bunch of stuff. So the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, appointed a plant. Probably the castor oil plant. They say the thing grows up quick. It's got big old elephant leaf type things. So he appoints a plant, and he made it come up probably faster than normal over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him, bless his heart, from his discomfort. And Jonah was, now you ought to mark this, Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. This is the only time in the book that Jonah is said to be happy. Jonah, are you happy that God saved your sorry tail from the belly of the great fish and from drowning? Well, I ain't going to say anything about it. Well, Jonah, are you glad that the Lord just saved them? I mean, you just had the greatest revival in history. I mean, you're going to have speaking engagements till Jesus comes back. Aren't you glad about that? No. I wish they'd all not repented and died. That's what would have made me happy. So, Jonah, people don't matter? No, but my comfort does. My comfort does. And I'm happy that I've got a little air conditioning. Well, when you turn 
And let me say this. I think air conditioning is a good thing. I think it's been working here today. I'm not, goodness gracious, I'm like, I've been in there with my big fur coat on. I've been freezing to death. And so air conditioning, big fan of it. Heat, big fan of it, okay? But I think they're good things. But here's my point. Take a good thing and turn it into a God thing, and it becomes a bad thing. And so Jonah has taken a good thing, and he now, it is the object of his heart. He loves the plant. He hugs the plant. He did the plant. He's just loving the plant. You know, plant plats his face into a basketball pole, but Jonah's got his face platted against a tree, and he's just loving on that thing and smooching on that thing. I'm going to stop right there. I know you've got more than you need, too much information. Well, then look what happens. God, and here's the, you know, God's the hero of the book, okay? We all know that. God is the hero of the book. But if you say, well, who do you think's the, the, the best supporting actor? Jonah? Oh, heck no. The worm. The worm. <laughs> Worm gets best supporting actor. And so when the dawn came up, or excuse me, the Lord sent a, a worm, and the worm attacked the plant, and it withered. By the way, this is where we get the phrase in just a moment, here today, gone tomorrow. All right, so he points the worm, worm eats the plant, plant withers, then God sends the sun, and then God appoints a Sirocco. A scorching east wind. And I did a little research on this, and it is said that when those things kick up, the heat can rise immediately from like 90 to 120 to 125 degrees, sand blowing. People sometimes go crazy. It is just absolutely just horrible to be caught in one of those things. So now Jonah, he ain't got his plan anymore. Sun's beating on his head, and the scorching Sirocco is working him over, so it's beating down on his head, and he's about to faint. So once more he asks the Lord that he might die, and he says in verse 8, it is better for me to die than to live. And again, I'd have answered that prayer, but God doesn't. And God says, all right, Jonah, let's just cut to the bottom line and just look at this very quickly, all right? And here we go. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do. I do well to be angry. In fact, I am so mad I could die. And God says, all right, let's just do a little analysis here. You pity the plant, but not people. You didn't labor for it. You didn't make it grow. Came into being in a night, and it perished in a night. Here today and gone tomorrow. But should I not pity Nineveh? It's a great city. There are more than 120,000 persons who are so morally messed up, who are so far from my revelation and my truth, while they hardly know their right hand from their left. And Jonah, you would like for me to destroy everything in that city, all of my creation, and I think that's probably why he throws in the phrase, there's also here much cattle. And again, as I've seen point out last night, the book stops right there. And the question is, what did Jonah do? No, the question is, what will you and I do? Because you see, the book of Jonah ends open-ended, not just for Jonah, but for you and also for me. And so let me just close by quoting two more men in this context, they say it very well. Since God is a missionary God, God's people are to be a missionary people. Eddie Ho, 
Asian, since God is a missionary God. God's people are a missionary people. John Piper says it in four simple words. Go, send, or disobey. Go, send, or disobey. The Great Commission is not an option to be considered. It is a command to be obeyed. Let's obey for the good of the nations and the glory of a God who is worthy of all our praise. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the book of Jonah. It's very familiar to most of us. And yet I can never go through it without being taught again something about your incredible grace and mercy and kindness. And Lord, not only did you have a heart for the nations, and I'm so glad that you do, you had a heart for your prophet. And I'm really glad you do for that. Because as one that falls into the category of a minister of the gospel, if I'm not careful, I can be like Jonah. And if I'm not careful, I can actually begin to think that some people are so bad they cannot be saved. And yet, Lord, what I really need to be reminded of is this. Nobody is so good that they don't need to be saved. And there's a real sense in this book in which, yes, the mariners needed to be saved and the people in Nineveh and Assyria needed to be saved. So did Jonah. Jonah needed to be saved from himself and from his narrow, paternalistic, nationalistic, ethnocentric perspective of what really matters to you. All lost people matter to you. Therefore, may those same lost people matter to us. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.